We're reading this morning from Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 10. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you cry out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield for those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the source of wisdom. Thank you that you long to make us wise to help us be people who can walk in integrity. So I pray, Lord, that you would use your word powerfully today. It's a living word. It's your revelation to us. May it penetrate our hearts, Lord. Give us open hearts that cry out to you for wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was struck by a survey I read this week by George Barna, who does, he's a Christian, he does all kinds of surveys, regular ones and uh, on different topics and comes out regularly with those. And the topic this week was, what do Americans want for their future? What do Americans want for their future? And it was a nationwide survey. Think for a moment about that. What do you think Americans would say that they want more than anything else? Two things were at the very top of the list. One is good health, which is understandable. Our nation is pretty obsessed with that, and we all want good health. That's important to us. But I was surprised by what was also equal with that at the very top of the list. I would have expected maybe a comfortable lifestyle, good-paying job, uh, solid marriage, good family. But... At the top of the list, along with good physical health, was that Americans want to live in the future with a high degree of integrity. I was surprised. I didn't think that was that important to Americans. But in the last eight years, that particular item has gone way up to the top. It was further down and it's gone way up to the top. You see, I think there's a hunger and a thirst in America today for integrity. There's been such an exposure of people who are in uh, the national spotlight who are not people of integrity, and it's awakened something in us as Americans. We long to be people, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, of integrity. What's integrity? Integrity is being able to live out your moral values, being someone who does the right thing, but who is whole, inside and out, who has a heart 
to do the right thing and is able to actually do it. That's what integrity is. It means to be complete, whole, living out your moral values. It's interesting to me that that is a longing, but I think it's built into the heart of every human being to long to become what we were created to be. I think it's true certainly for us as Christians because the Holy Spirit in us provokes that longing to become more like Jesus Christ. But the real question then becomes, well, if that's a longing for everyone, how do we get there? How do we become people of integrity, people who can live out our moral values and truly be what we long to be? How do we get there? See, I think we struggle with that, and most of us think, well, you know, maybe if I just learn the right secrets, and so we try to educate ourselves and read the latest books, etc. And if we're honest, we know that that doesn't work. But most of us also think self-discipline. If I, just, if I just tried harder, if I just applied myself, if I just committed more to do the right thing, then I'd be able to change myself. Although if we're honest about that, most of us have tried that, and that didn't work either. In fact, one of the most disciplined Americans, I think, maybe that has ever lived is Benjamin Franklin. And he's also considered one of the wisest Americans. A lot of little sayings he came up with, little proverbs of his own. He was a very disciplined man. And in his autobiography, he writes this, I grew convinced that truth, sincerity, and integrity in dealings between man and man were of the utmost importance to the felicity or happiness of life. He became convinced that integrity was one of the most important things in life. So he decided he was going to become a person of integrity. He made a list of 13 virtues. And he said, I'm going to work at these every day. And so he started to work at those. And they're different, all kinds of different virtues. And he begins working on them. He begins He made charts on how well he was doing in each of them, and he began, as he worked through them, he found that he wasn't so good at carrying it out, even though he was a very disciplined person. He says this about the third one on the list, which he calls order, which is really self-discipline. In truth, I found myself incorrigible, unable to change with respect to order or self-discipline. And now I am grown old and my memory bad. I feel very sensibly the want of it. I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but I fell far short of it. You see, no matter how hard we try, self-discipline can't make us into people of integrity. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says. He said he was blameless as to the law until, as he says in Romans 7, the law finally hit him in all its force, particularly the Tenth Commandment. The others, he could say, well, yeah, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stolen anything, really. But number 10, thou shalt not covet. And when he decided he would try to change his own heart and not even want what other people have, he found he couldn't do it. And he says, the law came home and I died. (laughs) I realized I could not carry it out. You see, he couldn't change his own selfish heart. And that's the problem with all of us. None of us can. As one Christian writer put it, 
He talks about talking to another man and he says, he and I both want to change more than we have and more than we do. I've heard many answers ranging from, you just haven't gotten serious enough about turning away from your sin, to, you need an experience of greater or entire sanctification, to, you need an, out- you need an accountability partner, to, you just need to let go and let God. Well, frankly, folks, I've tried all of those. None of them work. Those aren't necessarily bad things, but those can't change our hearts. They can't make us into the people of integrity that deep down we long to be. So how do we get there? Proverbs chapter 2, our passage today. Solomon and ultimately the Lord through Solomon reveals to us the surprising path to integrity. It doesn't come through gritting our teeth and trying harder. And way back in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Christ was even born, Solomon wrote these words to help us understand the true path to integrity, to having a changed heart. So let's look at these. The first step the path, on the path to integrity is to humbly receive the word. Proverbs 2 begins this way. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. A little better translation might be if you receive my words, if you take them in and treasure them up within you. The word for treasure there is one that's used for the temple treasury that they would bring all their most precious treasures into the temple and all the treasures of Israel were kept in the temple. And it says, if you take the words that are given through Solomon and ultimately through the Lord and treasure them up in your heart, he says, you'll be on the right path to integrity. Notice it has to be received from an authority above you, from the Father, ultimately through Solomon, ultimately from God himself. It means having an attitude of humbly receiving truth from another, realizing that I need someone else to give me truth, to reveal truth to me, to be an authority in my life. I need God to reveal reality to me. It means having an attitude of listening. Some of you are pretty good listeners, but we're not talking about a kind of listening that says, okay, I'm listening to the Word or I'm listening to what someone else says so that I can rebut it, (laughs) so that I can argue with it, so I can see if it agrees with me or not. No, really what he's talking about, the Father's teaching the Son, what Solomon is teaching us, and what God is asking us is to have hearts that are open that say, I want to learn something new. I want my heart to be changed because I don't have it all together. I don't understand reality very well. You see the humbleness behind that? It's, I don't have all the answers. I need somebody to straighten me out. Lord, I need you to change my thinking and to change my heart. To really listen means to hear and embrace it and grab onto it and want to be changed by what you hear. This idea of receiving or treasuring it means taking it into your heart, 
embracing it as truth to be believed and asking God for a way to live that out. Let me just give you an example. You all know the greatest commandment, Jesus said. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just take the second half of that. Now, we've all heard that, and our tendency when we hear that is to say kind of internally, yeah, I know I need to love people. I've heard that before, and kind of dismiss it. But to take it in is to say, Lord, you're right. I don't love people very well. I'm crying out to you. I need you to change my heart. Give me somebody to love today. I want your truth to penetrate who I am and change the way I relate to other people. That's humbly receiving the word. That's letting it enter into your heart and seeking to have God change you through it. Because you recognize the word as the authority in your life. It's over you and you want it to change who you are. Verse 3 explains even more what this whole process is like. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. Those words are used of someone in desperate need. Lord, I desperately need you to change me. I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to change my heart because I can't do it. You see that sense of humility, that sense of neediness, that sense of poverty of heart and of spirit? How do we get to that place of humility? I think it comes primarily by struggling in life, by having difficulties and trials by trying to do the right thing and failing. So we come to a place of great need. And I think those things are gifts to us. Our struggles are often gifts to us. Even our moral failures are sometimes gifts to us by God to bring us to our knees to recognize I don't have what it takes, God. I desperately, humbly need you to come into my life and change me. As I think about times in my life that I've been most desperate, particularly in the difficulties I've had in ministry and I've seen I haven't responded well and it's been hard and I've seen my own sinfulness, it's been tough, but it's driven me to my knees to cry out to the Lord, which is exactly what he wants us to do. We've had Gerald Sitzer come here before. He wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. Wonderful book. And he's a professor up at Whitworth College up in Spokane. And one night he was driving his van and they were hit by a drunk driver. His mother, his wife, and his daughter were all killed. And he wrote this book, A Grace Disguised, three years after that happened. And see, tremendous trials like that are horrible. They're painful. But they can be wonderful tools of God to lead us to a place of crying out. And in that book, I commend it to you if you're dealing with loss and pain, a grace disguised will help point you to how the soul, your soul, can be drawn to the Lord through that loss, to cry out to Him. Because trials don't always soften our hearts, do they? As it's been said, you know, the same water that softens the carrot hardens the egg, <laughs> the same hot water. You see, hot water can either harden us or it can soften us. And what we're talking about here, what the father is teaching his son is let life soften your heart so you cry out and say, I am in need. And then verse 4 describes, therefore you look for her as silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. If you do that, it's, it's a digging. It's a realizing some gems of wisdom and of insight 
are on the surface and you can just pick them up, but some take real mining for. This, I think, is an encouragement to dig into the Word, to be people who know how to study the Word on your own, who are learning to read the Word, but then look up words and outline and and really figure out what the Scripture is saying, and God will speak to you as you dig. So step one, if you want to be a person of integrity, is to humbly receive the Word. Be a person who cries out for the Word to penetrate your heart, that you might begin to live it out. Step two, I think, is a surprise. Because when you cry out for wisdom, when you cry out for integrity, what ends up happening is you don't get it right away. What you end up discovering is intimacy with God Himself. Verse 5. Then, if you do these things, if you humbly cry out, etc., verse 5, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. So step two is you discover intimacy with God. You get to know Him better, be, better and better. When you seek truth, when you seek wisdom, when you seek to grow, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what you discover is not more information, ultimately, when you dig into the Word, you discover an intimate relationship with Him. It's like opening a present and expecting one thing, and then you get something far better. Far better. Because you suddenly find you're knowing the Lord better and you're discovering who He is. So any open-hearted search for wisdom or truth, an honest search, if you seek Me, you will find Me, (laughs) will lead to knowing God. He says it will lead, you, you will understand the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's trusting Him. It's recognizing how awesome He is, and yet that awesomeness is turned toward you for good. So you want to trust Him. And it says that you will find the knowledge of God. Now, you need to understand the words here and the way it's designed. Every, every person I read, every scholar I read on this says it's not talking about knowledge about God. It's talking about an intimacy with God, the knowledge of God, knowing God. Now I could sit down with you and show you a picture of my wife Jeannie and I could describe what she's like. But you wouldn't really know her unless you sat down with her and spent time with her and began to understand her heart began to understand who she is. Well, that's the knowledge of God that's described here. When you seek wisdom and you humbly open your heart, teach me what you discover is God himself invades your life and he comes in and begins to reveal himself to you in a personal, intimate relationship with him. Isn't that wonderful? That's the surprise, I think, of the path to integrity. You begin to discover that he's the source of wisdom. That's what it says, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth he speaks to us. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. You realize he's the source of grace. You realize he loves you. You realize he's for you. You see, what this reveals to us, I think, and what the father is trying to teach his son here is that, son, if you really want to be a person of integrity, 
Ultimately, it all comes down to a personal relationship with the God of the universe. That's where we become whole. That's where we become who we are meant to be. It is not, as Benjamin Franklin learned, through self-discipline. That's not how we become all we were created to be. It's through becoming intimate with the God of the universe who created us for relationship with him. It's impossible to have true integrity through and through and wisdom without knowing him personally. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but I know a lot of good non-Christians. I know a lot of good people that don't know Jesus, that don't have a relationship with him. And they have a lot of wisdom at times. Well, here's what I think that what this passage is teaching us. Theologians talk about common grace. Common grace means grace that God gives to every human being, whether they know him or not. Common grace. Grace to understand things, to be able to do good things, to be kind, to have a certain level of goodness, etc., And all human beings have that opportunity as a gift from God. But like Benjamin Franklin, that will always fall short of what God has created us to be, which is a person of integrity where the inside is changed to match the outside. Where we become the people of integrity, what we were created to be and what we long to be. Otherwise, you're always disjointed without him. You're never complete inside and out. Only in relationship with the one who redeemed us, who made us, who loves us, who created us for himself, can we be people fully of integrity. So the surprising step two, you cry out for wisdom, step one. You cry out to be changed. You cry out. And what you discover is an intimacy with him as he reveals himself to you and you begin to love him and care for him and know him in a deeper way, which leads to step three is that internally your heart is changed. Verse 9, Then, the next step, step 3, you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. What's it describing here is you you have a sense of what's right because your heart has been changed. Wisdom has entered your heart. You have discretion. You have understanding about the right thing to do and your life has changed. So your heart, changed heart, can only come again by knowing God. But once you do, he begins to transform your heart as you walk in relationship with him, as you worship him, as you talk to him, develop intimacy with him. Our hearts cannot help but be changed from the inside out. Benjamin Franklin again writes, as he continued to work on these virtues, one of them was humility. He wanted to develop humility. He says, I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. He says, I could look pretty humble on the outside, but you know what? In reality, it didn't go very deep. And he says, in reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. And then he says, you will see it perhaps often 
in this history, in his own autobiography. You see, we can't change our hearts. But when we come in contact with the living God, our hearts begin to be changed. Now, hopefully, you, as you think about your own life, this has been a reality to you in your own life. We all have struggles with certain sins, and, it, and God calls us to put those off, right? And as I think about the sins that I've struggled with in my life, battled with the most, sins like a critical spirit, pride, certain aspects of lust that are natural, I think, for us as men, and, and those things that we battle against and struggle against and we know they're wrong and we want to change in our lives. My experience fits Proverbs 2. I've battled, and we ought to battle, okay? We ought to struggle. It's okay to struggle, but as you struggle, does it drive us to a place where we say, I can't seem to change myself. I can't do it. I need you to work in my heart, and we cry out, step one. And then God reveals himself to us, and we begin to know him better. And then suddenly we find our hearts are being changed. That's my experience, not that I've overcome everything, but as I look back, there's areas of my life that I struggled and battled against, and I look back and I go, you know, God has lessened the battle for me significantly. Not by me working hard to change it, but by simply getting to know Him. You see, a changed heart is really a byproduct of knowing Him better and better. You see how God keeps bringing us back to knowing him. It's all about knowing him. That's where we're whole. That's where life is. And so Solomon is writing and saying, oh, begin there, and then you'll begin to discover the joy of a changed heart. You see, what self-discipline can't do, God does as we know him better. Verse 9, which I read, says, you'll understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path, every good course, that word for path, or course, describes a road that has ruts in it. Okay, it's, it's a road with ruts. And I'm struck by that. That word is actually used several times in this chapter. It all depends on what path you get on, but if you get on the right path where you begin to live in integrity, where it becomes more of a reality as you're living out what's in your heart, you begin to discover the path that others have trod before you. And, you know, when you're on a road with ruts, it's hard to get out of those ruts. If you get on the right path, you find it gets easier and easier to stay in those ruts. And it's easier and easier for others to follow you down the right path. Your children, your friends, those, your family, those that you want to influence for the kingdom of God, for the gospel. Every good path, every good course. It's like the Oregon Trail. You can go to different places, and probably most of you have, and you've seen the ruts that are still there from the Oregon Trail that was traversed in the 1840s, 1850s in this area and through parts of Oregon. Those ruts are still there, and people knew where to go, how to get to the promised land, to Oregon, because they could see the ruts and follow them. You see, that's what God has called us to be. As we become people of integrity, we become a path that others can follow in life. That's what God's called us to be. 
So when your heart is changed through knowing God better and better, you begin to choose to change outwardly to match what's inside because it's coming out of a changed heart. And that's step four. You begin to actually live it out. You make wise choices. You begin to have integrity in your life. Verse 12, wisdom will save you or deliver you from the ways of wicked men. Verse 12 through 19, he says, here's what you'll be able to do. You'll be able to say no to temptation. You'll be able to say no to those things that keep coming at you that you have a hard time saying no to because you've walked the first three steps. You've gotten to know him better. Your heart's being changed. And suddenly it's not so attractive when temptation comes your way. You'll be able to say no. You'll be delivered from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways, dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. You're able to say no to the path of evil, to those who speak things to you that are perverse and then you realize that they've, there's this progression. They abandon what's right. They delight in doing bad things and their paths become crooked and twisted. You look at their lives and they're just out of whack. But how did they get there? They started walking the wrong path, speaking perverse things, then abandoning truth and getting further and further down that path. But you are able to say no to that if you walk this path of integrity. Then he describes a woman, an adulteress, verse 16 through 19, that you can say no to, which I think is a picture for us of just temptation. It will deliver you or save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the path of life. Again, there's a progression in temptation. Flattering words that sound good. It just sounds right. But then there's the breaking of covenant, a turning your back on truth. And her wagon truth, her wagon tracks, okay, same word, lead down to death. But you're able to recognize it and say, no, that's not attractive to me. I don't want to give in to that. But again, how are you able to do that? Crying out to God, getting to know Him better, having a changed heart so you recognize the foolishness of the temptations that the world throws at us. But it's a good reminder to us, the contrast here. Are you listening to seductive words, perverted words that the world is constantly throwing at us? Constantly. Or are you listening to wise words? What are you listening to? What are you embracing with your life? Because they lead down to completely different paths. My best friend for many, many years through college, we were college roommates for years. We attended seminary together. He was a man who uh, had four, has four beautiful daughters. And he began listening, despite all that truth he knew, despite all he had learned, he began listening to the seductive path. And I'm sure if you talked to him at that point, he would have never believed he would end up where he did, which was having an affair with somebody at work, 
divorcing his wife, abandoning his family, almost never sees his daughters, and he's off with someone else, has other children by this new woman he's been with. And you think, how did that happen? He knew so much truth, but I think he never really entered this pathway of, Lord, I need you to change me. I need you in my heart. And he discovered a deeper intimacy with God. He knew truth, but it never penetrated. He never entered this pathway to integrity. On the other hand, I know some incredible men and women of God who have, as I think of these, who have walked for many, many years down the pathway of integrity, despite struggles and temptations and, and tremendous losses in their life. People like Don and Kay and Dave Roper and Bruce and Ray and Howard and others I can think of. They chose the path of humility, of brokenness, of openness and intimacy with God, their hearts were changed and they walked that path of integrity. Well, the end result in verses 20 through 22 is this. Thus, if you walk these steps, you will walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of righteousness. You'll have good godly companions, he says. You'll be able to make good choices in your life. And it says, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. He's describing here being secure in the land. Now, for an Israelite, the land was the promised land, being secure in the land. What's the land for us as believers? It's not a place, is it? But it's the security of dwelling in the kingdom of God, knowing that he takes care of you and you are secure and safe in Him. So when we learn to walk this path of integrity, humbly crying out to God, developing an intimacy with Him, and suddenly seeing that's the most important thing is knowing Him. And then He changes your heart, and you begin to be able to live differently and live it out in how you live your life. Then you experience a security in life that no matter how hard it gets, no matter what you face, there's a freedom to trust. There's a peace, a security of dwelling in the presence of God at all times. You see, the land for us is not a place, but a security in life because you're in right relationship with God, with yourself, and with this moral universe that God has created. Ben Franklin never discovered true integrity. He was a deist, but he never discovered true integrity. But you know the path. It's right here in Proverbs 2. So will you walk it with me? Cry out for wisdom. Cry out for God to change you. Discover him and let him change you from the inside out. Let's take a moment and just pray, shall we? Just pray silently for a moment, whatever God lays on your heart, and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we admit that in terms of being able to do what's right and be people of integrity, change our own hearts, we are failures. We cannot do it. But Lord, thank you in your grace and in your love. You want to invade our lives and change us from the inside out as we know you better. Give us a passion, Lord, to know you, to walk with you, to be intimate with you, 
so that we can be changed and become what we long to be, people of integrity, who are whole, complete, living out what you created us to be. We thank you in Jesus' precious name who has forgiven us and given us access to the very throne room of yours. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. As we uh, close, I just want to say a couple words, do a little family business with you. Uh, As we announced, the elders announced a few months ago, we felt the calling from God that he wanted us to hire a pastor for the Cole Center for Biblical Studies. Our study center we had for many years. We trained pastors and missionaries, many lay leaders. It was a great ministry. The last few years we've had to put it on hold because we haven't had the leadership for it. And we decided God was calling us to hire a pastor for that. Well, in the last few weeks, we have sensed that God wants us to put that on hold for now. Mainly because as we look at our finances, uh, the level of charitable giving, not just at Cole, but throughout our culture, you know, with the economy the way it is, it's been tough. And Cole's, we've had to tighten the belt a fair amount here at Cole. Things have gotten tighter. We understand. We're understanding of that. That's part of the economy. But we have decided that we will reevaluate in September and see where we are at that point. Um, We would still love to get the study center going again and hire a pastor for the study center, but we've decided it's wise for us now to put it on hold till at least September, and we'll review it at that time. So we wanted to announce that, and we also ask that you'd pray about that, our study center. We think it's a great, viable, important ministry for Cole. We'd like to get it going again. And would you pray about our finances as well? Things are tight, and we've had to borrow from other funds just to meet our daily needs uh, here at Cole. So... If you'd pray about that, that would be great. I just want to read, in closing, a word from Jesus in the Beatitudes. I think it's a wonderful picture for us. Verse 6, chapter, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This could be his commentary on Proverbs 2. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That's Jesus' promise to you and me. So go this week, walk in intimacy with him, and discover the joy of integrity. God bless.